Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 5th, 2022. Um, many of our conversations over the last few months have been about the crisis of politics, of democracy in the West. That crisis today on July the 5th only seems to have been exaggerated. The British government seems to be falling to pieces. I'm not sure if that necessarily reflects a crisis of freedom and democracy, but it doesn't either speak particularly highly of them in the United States. More and more fear of civil war, a bloody end to democracy is what uh, Elizabeth Sandifer, interesting activist I had on the show uh, last week. Um, this idea of the end of freedom and democracy is not just uh, a, a progressive conceit. It's one that Steve Bannon seems to articulate unashamedly. I had um, Jennifer Senor from, uh, uh, from The Atlantic on. She wrote a wonderful piece on Bannon, which he seems to be almost celebrating the end of democracy. I wrote a piece about this crypto crashes, inflation, gun-toting white nationalists, none of which speak particularly optimistically of the future of the American Republic, of the Democratic Republic. And Peter uh, Zihan uh, came on the show last week. He has an interesting new book out, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, mapping the collapse of globalization. He might also be mapping the collapse of democracy and freedom. What Zihan said to me was that we have no idea of how politics is going to change. But in 10 years, it will have changed dramatically. The crisis is just beginning. Um, one of the keenest and smartest observers of our politics of change is uh, digital theorist Jamie Suskin. He was on the show in February of this year, talking about how digital technology will transform politics and society. He had a book out, Future Politics, which is an interesting take on it. And he has a new book out today. It's published in the United States, The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century. It's a timely book on July the 5th, the day after Independence Day in America. And Jamie is joining us from his home in Highbury, North London. Jamie, the Digital Republic. Are you hopeful? fearful i'm halfway between those two first of all thanks for having me back uh i, I very much enjoyed our chat in in february uh, and um in terms of whether i'm optimistic or pessimistic I, I think the future is still all to play for so i've written this book because i can imagine at least from my perspective what a better future looks like particularly with regards to our relationship with digital technology do I think it will come about inevitably? Absolutely not. Do I think things could be disastrous? Possibly. But do I think we have agency to prevent that from happening? Yes, I do. That's why I wrote the book. Your publisher described you as one of the leading intellectuals of the digital age. Um, do you think we need digi leading digital intellectuals? What, what do you bring as an intellectual? This is a an intellectual book. It, covers everyone from uh, Hannah Arendt to um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau to Mel. You're deeply scored in a lot of political theory. 
why do we need to go back to basics, Jamie, to, to think about a digital republic? Well, let me put it this way. Uh, there are lots of impediments in the way to making the world better. Some of them are political, some of them are economic, some of them are social. One of them is intellectual. I think that it, if we can't make sense of the world, if we can't clearly articulate what is happening and what we would like to see done differently and why, then it makes it a lot harder to, and it makes it a lot longer to move to a better future. So the intellectual has a limited but important role in society, which is to try to clarify the state that we find ourselves in and shed light on where we could go in the future. One of the frustrations I have with a lot of other people writing in this area, and I'm not, I'm not shy about saying this, is that they're really difficult to understand. You know, I don't, I, I don't think that the, the, the job of a, a scholar is to write stuff that only that scholar can truly understand in the quiet of their own study. Is this political theory or people who write about political theory in the context of digital? Yeah, good question. It's, it's both. So, you know, particularly the kind of continental philosophical tradition in Europe, there's a lot of smart thinking there, but it's expressed in a way that is utterly uh, impenetrable. And then you start getting onto tech and I'm afraid there's a lot of jargon, there's a lot of hype, there's a lot of, um, uh, well, there's a lot of obfuscation. And my aim in these books is not, is to make the reader feel as smart as they are, to show them that the world is complex, but it's not beyond our understanding. And I think the real role of an intellectual in a, in a democracy is to help bring intellectual clarity to the difficult issues of the day. Do you have heroes who, who you think do that or have done it? People whose models you're trying to emulate, maybe not their ideas, but their style of writing, their verve, their clarity, their accessibility. Yeah, I, I do. I, I mean, I... And don't say Orwell. I won't, although I think he's... Uh, I, I, actually, Orwell doesn't do... Orwell, Orwell had a kind of different role, which is an incredibly interesting and good role, but not one that I'm seeking to fulfill and would never even aspire to that level. But my heroes, who did I think of? So when I was writing the book, I, I, I went back to some of the kind of um, the great political manifestos of the past, whether it was the Federalist Papers or Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Origins, a Discourse on the Origins of Inequality, John Stuart Mill on Liberty, some of the early Cicero. Uh, and what I love about those is that they all, so they so concisely capture and so powerfully capture a, a, not just a kind of set of ideas, but an entire way of thinking, a, a, an outlook on the world. Um, and yeah, th those are my heroes. Jamie, uh, like you, I'm from London and like you, I'm sure I travel a lot on the tube on the underground train. And there's the famous uh, message when you get off the London underground, mind the gap, which we all used to play around with. Are we living in a moment of a more perhaps intellectual gap, this gap between the analog and the digital world? And is that the thing that's most 
uh, complex and hard to make sense of, at least in a simple way. This shift from, uh, I mean, you, you, your book is called The Digital Republic, this shift from the analog republics that uh, Rousseau and Mill and uh, Madison and, and Hamilton laid out um, and the digital republic, which is on the horizon, perhaps, although, as you say, nothing is ever inevitable. So is this is this the gap that we're struggling with or is that oversimplification? It's, it's not oversimplifying. I, I, I mean, there are a number of analogies you might use. I sometimes think it's a bit like we've fallen into a swimming pool. We're used to walking around and breathing the air. And then all of a sudden we are surrounded by an element that seems new and alien. Mm. Although to many, you know, of course, to many younger folks, uh, it doesn't seem new and alien at all. But I think I still think, you know, the, the digital world that I describe in the book is still fairly young. The, the, the history books and the political theory books, you know, they speak of different forms of social power in society and many of these are very long-standing so you have traditional political power in places like palaces and courtrooms and um armies uh you know army bases and the like you have social power the power of norms the power of shame the power of language you have economic power the invisible hand as adam smith put it shunting stuff around the economy and what we have in our time is a new form of power that's arisen in our midst, the power of digital technology. And I do believe that in time it will be recognized as being among the first rank of sources of power in society. Uh, and it should have been already. And that's what my book's about. But that's revolutionary. You know, a, a change in a fundamental change in the way that we store and communicate and process information, the computing revolution has led to a different kind of politics, a different kind of society. And we're really just at the beginning of that change. So yeah, I think things are probably happening faster than we are able to make sense of them. Why is that different though? I mean, we've, we've gone through the crypto mania of the last few months. Crypto has crashed. A lot of people said crypto's different. It doesn't turn out to be that different. It needs to be supported by government. We've been told by generations of digital intellectuals of one kind or another that the internet's different. Uh, and, and it never seems to be that different. What, what in your mind is so different about digital from the analog world? The same laws apply. You still have economics. You still have power. You still have violence. You still have opinion. You still have claims of truth. What's different about digital, Jamie? Well, I mean, let's just be clear, uh, every time in civilization that uh, human beings have undergone a radical transformation in their modes of communicating and storing and processing information, so moving from an oral age to an age of literacy, an age of writing and script, then moving from that to the printing press, uh, and then from the printing press to the, printing press to the computing age, and then whatever we're in now, that all of those have been followed by profound political upheavals, changes in the social forms and political structures that human beings use to organize themselves. So I don't, I don't accept the premise that, uh, oh, you know, this is, uh, people have told us that things would change in the past and they haven't, they have, they've changed profoundly. And I think that we're going through another one of those cycles just now. Um, 
there are there are so many ways and, and you know the book is about this but there are so many ways that i think the digital technology changes the way we live and i try to use kind of familiar political categories to describe it so i think that tech gives certain groups in society a new and strange form of power i think it changes the way that we conduct ourselves as democracies i think it has profound implications for human freedom by limiting and delimiting our available courses of action so I do think there's going to be a, a great deal of change. I think we're seeing it already. Um, the crypto thing, you know, I'm a bit of a crypto skeptic myself, or at least I'm skeptical of the, of, the, of, the, of the kind of political claims that are made on behalf of blockchain technologies that they'll lead to a more decentralized society. Yeah, it's funny. Um, when we talked in February, you confessed, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you, you don't mind me saying this, you confessed that you thought you would get critiqued in this book because you left out all the Web3 stuff. And actually, four months is a long time in digital history. And I'm sure you're pretty happy now you left it out, given the crash of Web3 and crypto. Uh, um, look, I mean, I, I don't I, I'm not right. I'm not I'm not writing the obituary for that stuff yet. Uh, I, I, I am quite confident that some of the claims that are made about the capabilities of digital technologies in the Web3 arena are just nonsense. Uh, and just a little bit of reflection shows their nonsense. You've got you've got people who are really they're setting out to make an enormous amount of money, a lot of them, uh, but they're also making claims that there's going to be profound societal change. You've got you've got this assumption that society would reorder itself around a technology. So if a technology is decentralized, then society becomes decentralized. That's not that's not what's happened with the internet. The internet has come to be has come to reflect the society in which it was born, it's dominated by strong corporations and strong governments. So there's, there's a lot of the cant around Web3. I'm afraid I think firstly, it's people who aren't very political trying to mask what are essentially commercial endeavors as political ones, not all of them, but some of them. But secondly, even those who are idealistic in their politics, I think are just that. I, I think they imagine that technology alone determines society, but that's not that's not what I think is the case. Jamie, you, t you, you brought up three of the classics on freedom and democracy. Rousseau's social contract, Mills on liberty, Rousseau's social contract from the, uh, obviously from the France, pre-revolutionary France, Mills on liberty from mid 19th century England, Federalist Papers from late 18th century uh, United States. It occurs to me, I mean, they're all really important books, obviously, um, but none of these books are about how technology changes politics, are they? Were any of the authors, I mean, Rousseau implicitly writes about technology, but I'm not sure if the core of his idea of a free and fair society has anything technological about it. And certainly Mill and, and, and Hamilton and Madison don't argue that. Um, are there books, do you think, classics which build, and maybe you disagree with that, with what I'm saying. I mean, you, you know these books better than I do. Um, but are there classics on political ideas, on freedom and democracy, which are essays about the impact of technology on freedom and democracy? Uh, I agree with your analysis. The The big missing name, though, I think is Karl Marx. And I think it would be fair to say 
that an enormous amount of Karl Marx's writings were influenced by the industrial revolution and the new technologies of economic growth that were emerging uh, in the 19th century or had emerged by then. Uh, so I think that of all of those, of all of the kind of canonical thinkers in Western political thought, I would say Marx is the one who has said the most, let's say before the 20th century, Mark, I think Marx is the one who said the most interesting stuff about, about technology. Marx famously, of course, wrote in his analysis of the failure of the 1848 revolution in France that history repeats itself first as tragedy, then as farce. Um, could digital be treated in that way? I mean, some Marxists might argue, they indeed have argued, that digital simply reflects what Marx believed were truths about monopoly capitalism control of the elites, the struggle to liberate ourselves. And indeed, if you look back at Marx's essay on German ideology and the idea of technology realizing our species being, you could read some of your colleagues at the Berkman Center, like Larry Lessig, and probably see a, a second or third rate Marxist analysis. So what? Wh why doesn't Marx prove that Nothing's changed. I mean, I agree that Marx is important, but what's different now than when Marx was writing in the middle of the 19th century about the promise of industrial society? And of course, he was mostly wrong, or at least in my view, he's mostly wrong. Well, I mean, at, at a certain level of abstraction, there, is, there isn't much difference between writers. So if what, you're, if what we want to describe Marx as is a, uh, an economic and political theorist who... Uh, was interested in the consequences of the profound technological changes that were taking place around him, uh, then that is something that could be applied to thinkers in the 21st century as well. So nothing's changed in that regard. Obviously, <laughs> what has changed is that history has moved on, the technologies have moved on, they're different. I, I, For instance, I don't like the phrase that people use about the tech revolution, describing it as the fourth industrial revolution. I don't think the key... I don't think the key implications of digital technology are industrial. I think that they are political. Uh, and that, so that I think separates the 21st from the 19th century quite profoundly. That's, you know, that's my view. Um, I, I think reducing digital technology to its economic impact is missing the broader social and political impact. But what about M Marx or at least Marxist theories of monopoly capitalism? I mean, big tech, Google, the, Googles and the Amazons, uh, the Microsofts of the world, and I mention Facebook as much because they seem as powerful. But aren't these classic manifestations of monopoly capitalism trying to seize control, not just of the economy, but of the state? There's a lot to learn from Marx's analysis of capitalism, and you don't have to be a Marxist to, to do so. What I have learned and what I believe is that the way that a society develops and the way that technologies develop are profoundly influenced by the economic arrangements of a society in which they were born. And this is a big theme of the digital republic. My analysis is that digital technology has been developing according primarily to the logic of the market economy. So products are and systems are designed and engineered 
within a capitalist economy for capitalist purposes. And that's not inherently a bad thing, but we shouldn't be surprised when, for instance, a social media platform engineered according to commercial and capitalist logic does not provide outcomes that are acceptable according to democratic or liberal logic. And this is something that Marx wrote about. I forget where he did. I think it was in his essay on the Jewish question when he was a bit younger. He wrote this. He wrote that we live this life in heaven and on earth. Um, we, we are at once a kind of, and now I'm paraphrasing, we're at once citizen and consumer. We live as as Democrats, but we also live as capitalists. And I see that tension in the way the digital technology has developed. And really the big argument in my book is that if we want to have freedom and democracy in the future, we need to rebalance. We need to swing the dial back from capitalism a little bit and just back further towards democracy. What does that mean? Does that make you a critic of, and we've done lots of shows on neoliberalism, one with the Cambridge historian, uh, Gary uh, Gerstel, a really interesting book on the rise and fall of the neoliberal economy. Are you suggesting that the internet, if, if we are indeed to become a digital republic, uh, we need some sort of what economic, if not a revolution, certainly a radical transformation? Uh, just a couple of points. Um, I, I don't use the word neoliberal. I think it's a word that means different things to different people and is kind of unhelpful. Um, but I do talk about market individualism, uh, which is a kind of it's, quite, it's kind of similar to, to neoliberalism in, in all its relevant respects. And that is the logic according to which I say that te technology has been developed. Secondly, I'm not just talking about the Internet. This isn't really just a book about the Internet. It's a book as well about artificial intelligence, about robotics, about the Internet of Things, because we need to get out of this mindset that we're just talking about cyberspace. We're not. Digital technology surrounds us. It's there in all of our actions, our interactions, our transactions. It is not something we can shut down or log off like the Internet was in the 90s. Uh, it's just that that world has finished. Do I want a revolution? No. So there will be digital socialists who say, you know, let's take the commanding heights of the digital economy into public ownership. Let's nationalize Facebook. Um, the reason I'm a Republican and not a, a socialist in that regard is that I also worry not just about the power of corporations, but about the power of the state. And, you know, if you look at what's happening in China, yes, the Chinese government has been cracking down on the big tech companies, but that's of little comfort to the people of China because the Chinese government itself is the most, the most powerful user of technology for its, for its own ends in the world, probably. So, what we need to strike is not a revolution, not the overthrow of capitalism and not the overthrow of the state, but just strike a better balance where the commercial interests of those who design and own digital technology are just slightly more balanced against other social interests. And by the way, this is a balance that we're used to striking in other private industries. So when you assume a position of responsibility in society, if you become a lawyer, if you become a doctor, if you become a banker, we don't just let you get on with it we impose rules and standards not, not even that onerous a lot of the time but they're there to keep you in check we don't just rely on your goodwill and your wisdom to make the right choice with the power that you have assumed for yourself i i, I try to apply that kind of analysis to digital technology it seems to me that it does apply there as well uh, and for some reason however we treat it as different 
I think um, Marx will be turning in his grave, Jamie, up the road from you in uh, in Highgate. Uh, you're down the hill in uh, in Highbury. He believed that you couldn't reform capitalism in the middle of the 19th century. You're suggesting we can reform everything that's gone wrong. What are your historical models? Of course, I guess Mill was writing at the time of Marx, but Rousseau and uh, Hamilton and Madison were writing beforehand. Who are you, who or what are your models for the creation of a republic in, in our capitalist age in the 19th and 20th centuries? You ask such good questions, uh, Andrew. Um, there's no, there's no uh, single great answer to that, but I think the best answer, the best historical era that's analogous to this one would be about 100 years ago what is, I think, in the States commonly referred to as the progressive era, um, but something similar was happening in Europe as well. Basically, following industrialization, you had the rapid rise of new and very powerful private corporate interests, and you had people on right and left. Indeed, it was the Republicans under Theodore Roosevelt who took some of the greatest um, steps to rein in that power. So the idea was it, democracy will not survive if certain private interests, you know, the, the great robber barons and the like, with their banking empires and their, their, their um, commodities empires, uh, democracy cannot survive if certain groups in society get too powerful. The, the main difference, and so what you saw was a, a, a raft of regulatory, um, a raft of regulatory interventions to curtail that power the invention of modern antitrust law being one of them. And that eventually became the kind of jumping off point for what would later happen during the New Deal era. And I, I think we're going through something similar today. The big difference, though, is that I argue that unlike a mining conglomerate or a railway conglomerate, the, the ownership and control of certain digital technologies allows people, the powerful who own them, to, to exert a different and new kind of political power. Um, I think a lot of the concern about the robber barons was that they would gain loads of money and then they would use that money to influence the traditional political process. That wasn't the only concern, but I think it was the big one. Um, the same I don't think is true of digital technology. Facebook does spend an enormous amount on lobbying and the like, but it, its power, that's actually not really the source of its power. Jamie, I take your point that the uh, the progressive period, uh, the anti the the, the, the trust busting period in American history, is a, a relevant um, period to look back at. But it's I, I'm assuming, and and and, and this is m m partly my interpretation from reading the Digital Republic. You're not just suggesting we go back to a regulatory republic. We don't want to just go back to Teddy Roosevelt or certainly the New Deal or the great society, digital offers something else. It offers the potential for new kinds of freedom and democracy. Well, that seems to be the heart and the soul of your book. That's where the hope is, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And you've put it very uh, elegantly. Uh, this isn't just a book about boring old regulations of the kind that we've I've written those kind of boring books. I wrote one called How to Fix the Future, which was a bit boring. But so you're, yeah. you're taking the next step. I've got it here on my shelf, Andrew. Good. Well, I'll Ooh. sign it for you next time I see you. 
but uh, and it's not a boring book. And actually, I don't think regulation is boring either. But the point you're making is correct, which is that firstly, digital technology is incredibly exciting and important uh, in the development of the human civilization. And we want to do everything we can to encourage it, but also, you know, encourage it in the right direction. My book is trying to understand what kinds of laws would help us to harness it in the name of democracy and in the name of freedom, rather than just focusing negatively on reducing harms that are caused by it. So that's the optimistic project. That's the goal. That's the digital republic. When it comes to political theory, I did a, a show with my old friend David Runciman, um, big Hobbes fan, but wonderful historian of political ideas, teaches at Cambridge University. We also talked about Hannah Arendt. I know you're interested in Arendt. I wonder whether Arendt might offer a path to understanding why freedom and democracy in the 21st century be different in the way in which, and you talked earlier about AI, the way in which digital can perhaps liberate us from labor and, and finally put Marx to death, get him out, get him out of the picture. Well, Marx would have, I mean, Marx would have approved of the idea of fully automated luxury communism, the idea that, you know, the drudgerous work of adding value that humans perform in the economy can instead be given to mindless robots while, you know, the rest of us can spend our time fishing and writing poetry and painting art. I think that's something that Marx would have found <laughs> attractive and he believed was inevitable. Yeah, and he wrote, he wrote about it in that famous species being essay in, in the German ideology. That's right. Um, I don't think we're there yet. I mean, there are, there are other members of my family, uh, my brother in particular, who's an economist, who thinks that we are heading towards a world without work, uh, which I think is likely, if properly managed, to be a good thing for humankind. Um, but of course, as Daniel recognizes, and as I believe, we, we know we work for a number of reasons. We work not just to survive in a capitalist economy, but where we can, where we have the luxury, we work because it's fulfilling, because it's meaningful, because it gives us something fun to do during the day, because it builds us a sense of self-esteem and esteem in the eyes of others. We'll always need those things, whether it's through labor or through some other channel. What about putting an end to geography? It seems as if in America in particular, the, the political crisis of democracy and freedom is one of geography, this division of the country between city and countryside. Um, can digital eliminate geography in terms of this struggle for freedom and democracy? And, and when you talk about a digital republic, and this is a bigger question, perhaps, Jamie, I, I mean, are we talking about the, the, the geography of nation state? Or are you in the camp of those who believe that digital can finally allow us to create a global digital republic? I'm going to take your last question first. Um, I am in the camp who believes the digital te technology should should be and probably will be regulated primarily at the level of states and if not of states of, of and I mean countries and if not at the level of countries, then at the level of blocks like the European Union. Uh, I don't believe in the idea of a kind of world law governing artificial intelligence or governing the internet first of all i think it's an 
extremely unlikely thing to happen. You know, if you look at what's happening in the standards bodies around the world where Chinese technocrats are, are after decades of dormancy, you know, asserting Chinese norms and values against the dominant American way of thinking, you'll see that basically even things like basic internet protocols are going to be highly contested in the future. But I would add, I would add another thing, which is that different democratic traditions should be able to set their own rules about how technology is governed. So I don't see why someone in France or Germany should be governed, you know, who's using a social media platform should be governed by American First Amendment principles around freedom of speech. And likewise, I don't think many Americans would enjoy the French or German approach to restricting speech either. They're all democracies, they're all liberal democracies. They've just taken a slightly different approach to that issue. And it doesn't seem to me to be desirable as well as practical that they should have the same rules. So uh, the cynic in me says that, you know, the tech companies would like a world law, both because it reduces their costs of doing business, but also because it's the world, the least likely thing to happen. Uh, and the likely result is no law. So I'm quite content to see a kind of patchwork of different regulatory regimes evolving around the world. I know it creates problems for interoperability, for trade and the like, but it's, it's also a time of experimentation of regulatory sandboxes at the nation state level. Um, so that's what I kind of am comfortable with. That's what I think will probably happen in actuality. Um, as to your answer about whether, as to your question about whether democracy can narrow the gap between, you know, the yawning chasms that exist in American society, for instance, I, I don't, I don't make that claim for digital technology. Others may, but I don't. Finally, Jamie, let's go back to Peter Zeeham. We began with him. The end of the world is just the beginning, mapping the collapse of globalization. Note he doesn't say the collapse of democracy or freedom, although I think he might think it, it is. Um, he said by 2032, everything's going to have changed politically, that we're on the verge of profound political change. I'm not sure if you believe that, but I know you think that there are changes. Let's just, and, and, and we can... We can reassemble, Jamie, in 2032 to check whether you're right on this. But what could you imagine to be the headlines, the, the, the key bullets in 2032 in terms of the political change? If things go right with your digital republic, and then, of course, if things go wrong, what is the best and the worst case scenario for your vision of a a digital republic of freedom and democracy in the 21st century. By 2032, we're almost in the middle of the 21st century. We're near. We're nearing the 22nd century. <laughs> I don't think you're nearing the 22nd century at 2032, but I'll take up your challenge. First, I'll begin with a caveat. My book has a kind of caterist paribus approach where I'm not trying to predict the kind of future of world history. So, for instance, I think that what's happening with the climate is likely to have an enormous impact on the right. future of civilization. I just wouldn't profess to be an expert in that field. So what I'm not pretending to be is a kind of Yuval Harari of the future, um, crystal balling, you know, how society will be different in 10 years. What I do in the book is, it, is more focused. I ask, what would a well-governed, digital society look like? And the answers to that 
in my mind, are, are, are fairly clear. The unaccountable power enjoyed by those who design and control technologies would be reduced by way of new rights, new standards, new appeal bodies, new, new methods of investigation and oversight. Uh, but we would also involve people more in the democratic construction of their own digital lives. So I'd like to see democratic mini publics being used to decide issues of important public policy rather than just leaving them to technocrats. Digital um, citizen assemblies, essentially, right? Yeah, although I'd get people together in person. You know, right. I'm not one well, of both. Not... Eh? You can't have one without the other. No, no agreed. Uh, so, what, I mean, what I say in the book is that I think there are better ways of being democratic than we currently do. And I think we don't give people to be, the chance to be their best democratic citizen selves. And I'd like to do that more in the future. Um, I'd have, I, we'd be seeing algorithms you know, the kinds of algorithms that distribute jobs or mortgages or criminal justice or loans or housing, we'd see them engineered to reduce injustice in society rather than amplifying it. That's what, that's what would happen in my digital republic. We'd see social media platforms which are engineered to improve democratic deliberation rather than erode it. Uh, and we'd see a tech ecosystem in general, governed in a way that tries to increase human liberty rather than reducing our consciousness, reducing our options, reducing our lives to a kind of to a Roger Brown sword called the kind of great airport, the idea that we're constantly being buffeted around by forces we don't really understand, still less control. So a digital republic is a world in which the awesome power of digital technology is lashed to the grandest aspirations of humankind to be free and to govern themselves.